Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me as always, my my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And Mark, I just have to say that even on those days where, you know, we record here late Thursday night, we drop the podcast on Friday. By this point, we're four days deep into the work week. Sometimes we're a little bit ragged. And honestly, we sit down, that intro song plays, and I am fired up. So big shout out to JT the Human, who is the rapper, the artist that allows us to use that track. Shout out to Micah Boyce from Chicago for helping to broker that deal. We get so much positive feedback about that intro, and really, it helps put me in the right mental state. But my friend, how the heck are you? I'm doing good, my friend, and like you, I love that uh, that intro music, uh, JT. It's it's just a great song, great great song, and happy we can uh, collaborate with uh, somebody of that uh, that talent. You know, I sometimes feel like say we're not worthy, but apparently we're <laughs> worthy enough. But it's good, and yes, I'm excited. It is weekend. We got a Grand Prix coming up. We're literally hours away from FP1 for whatever that's worth. But it's nice. I, I sometimes forget how much I miss Formula One on the off weekends. So here we it go. It feels like it's been, and maybe because I didn't record the post-race show when we were in Austria most recently, but it feels like an eternity since we had right? a Formula One race. And of course, we didn't have a race to recap on Sunday. In fact, we actually thought we would take the re- weekend off and just do a single podcast drop this week. And this year, we've done a really good job of delivering two, sometimes three podcasts a week. But a friend of the show, and you know I'm going to recognize him now, Andy Amendola. Thank you so much for helping make this a reality for us. But we actually had on very short notice, uh, he brokered an opportunity for us. And I say brokered, not in the sense that there was any money exchanging hands, but he helped coordinate a possibility, an opportunity for us to sit down with IndyCar driver and former Formula One test driver, Tatiana Calderon. Uh, that came out. We recorded that, I think, Tuesday, right? And you mixed it, yes. produced it, and you had it live for Wednesday morning. So big shout out to Andy. We cannot thank you enough for helping to make make that a reality for us. Uh, and it continues our interview series. So in a week where we thought we might only drop one podcast, we ended up dropping two. So super happy we could do that for the whole community. Yeah, it's awesome, especially when somebody like one of our friends in the community, like Andy, reaches out with an opportunity like that. It was was unexpected, but amazing. And she was a great interview. I I learned so much. Uh, so if you guys haven't had a chance to listen, back up. It's episode 355. This is obviously 356. So make sure you go and uh, check that out. So we got a lot of things to talk about tonight. Let's uh, quickly just uh, let's wipe the, pa- uh, the palette clean here. So let's just uh, reset. We'll uh, just go over the uh, <laughs> championship I, I, standings. Reset. Set right after when did, we're like three what, minutes into the show or whatever it is. Wipe the palette clean. Is that yes. what you just said? Okay. I did. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, you know, well, for <laughs> do we really do two, three and a half minutes in? But apparently we do. Anyways, on uh, the uh, Formula Perfect One Drivers' way. Championship, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, leading the way back, Verstappen with uh, 208 points, Charles Leclerc for Ferrari, 170 points, Sergio Perez from Red Bull, 151 points, Carlos Sainz, 133, George Russell, 128, and Lewis Hamilton with 109 over on the constructor side. Red Bull still leading the way with 359 points, Ferrari 303, Mercedes 237, McLaren 81, and Alpine rounding out the top five also with 81 points. Now, is the Formula One Fantasy League website working this week? I'm judging by the smile, that's a yes, that's an affirmative. So the first thing I'll mention, and this is a Fantasy League that has been dominated by our, our British audience. So To give you a little bit of context, more than half of our audience is based out of the US and about a quarter of it's Canadian, but about 16% of our audience is based in the UK. UK listeners represent 70% of the top 10, once again. So taking it from the top 10, number one, Andrew T, 2,400 points. Number two from Canada, Adam J, 2,341. Number three, also from the UK, Thaddeus F, 2,306 Fourth, Ludwig Y, also from the UK, 2,282 points. Number five, from the UK, Whitman <laughs> R, 2,278 points. Number six, from the UK, Delbert D, 2,266 points. Number seven, also from the UK, Marshall W, 2,264 points. Number eight, from Canada, Noah F, 2,260 points. Number nine, also from the UK, Clemmy R, 2,250 points. The first time I think Clemmy's cracked the top 10 and that we do have an American listener in the top 10, Brian W, 2,232 points. So again, we have 2,033 entries. There's still a little bit of movement in the top 50% of the pool. If you're still interested, if you're still motivated, half of the season is still left and there could be some surprises. So don't check out, don't give up on your fantasy league yet. That's interesting. I was just thinking that the, the the fantasy championship is like the complete inverse of like the demographics or the the, the countries where the uh, yeah. where the audience is based. So in uh, it was for our audience for the podcast, it's USA, Canada, UK, and then fantasy. It's UK, Canada, and then the USA, Canada, still number two in both. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. tough, right? And I don't think yeah. Americans realize this, but sometimes it can be tough to live in the shadow of the United States when you have ten times the population, ten times the wealth. Your sports teams always do well. You dominate in the Olympics. You know we celebrate the small victories, but recently we've had some big ones like the Canadian women's team winning gold at the 2020 Summer Games was big. And you know what? The men's team has qualified for Qatar in 2022. So that's exciting. But uh, we we celebrate the small victories. Exactly. And we're the land that invented poutine. So there's that as well. Uh, Let's uh, go on to some of... I I love how you're setting up these shows now with uh, some of these... I wouldn't say it's like chewing gum, but something kind of like fun to kind of get into and just to, they're, they're kind of like neat little stats. But the Formula One 300 race club, Lewis is going to hit 300 Grand Prix raced this weekend in France. He's going to join Rubens Barrichello, Michael Schumacher, Fernando Alonso, Kimi Raikkonen, and Sebastian Vettel will most likely get into the 300 club by the end of the year. He's currently at 289 uh, races Mark, in Formula One. So that's I apologize. pretty cool. 
I didn't do my homework on that. That list you didn't. isn't quite. It's not quite factual. Oh, so here's the here's dude, the actual af- list. After I embarrassed myself, but okay, I'll let you mop up and clean it up <laughs> probably, as as you do, anyways. But. I should have mentioned it in the green room. Where the green room. The green room when we were prepping for the show. Kimi Räikkönen, three hundred fifty races. Alonso, three forty five, and of course counting. So he should crack three fifty. He should actually become the leader in all time races by the end of the seasons. Rubens Barrichello, wow. three twenty two. Michael Schumacher and Jensen Button have both started 306 races. Lewis is at 299, which will become 300 in a couple of days from now. And of course, Sebastian Vettel, like you mentioned, at 289. He should also, with 11 races left, crack the 300 race club this year. Wow, that's a lot of Grand Prix. No kidding, right? I mean, there's like thousands of races between that uh, collection of drivers. That is that is a mind-blowing stat. Now, a fun stat, because you mentioned Dan Jensen Button, so he actually still has a three-grade, uh, th- sorry, a three-place grid penalty for his next Formula One race. This goes back all the way to 2017, when he did a one-off to fill in for Fernando at Monaco, when Fernando was uh, competing at the Indy 500. And then he co- uh, collided with uh, Pascal Verlein during the race, and that was just uh, in that uh, corner, I forget what the name is, just before they go into the tunnel. And then Pascal ended up on the side of his car, his car leaning up against the uh, the Armco barrier there. Anyways, uh, should Jensen ever climb back into a Formula One car for a Grand Prix, he's going to have a three grid, sorry, a three place grid penalty. So that's kind of a, a funky stat. And shout out to Aldis for that. I pulled that off of his Twitter feed. I actually, and it's funny because I remember that race and I remember that moment so vividly when the car ended up on its side. And I felt bad for Jensen because he finished his career with McLaren in 2016. And of course, that was a miserable team with a miserable power unit. And then he came back, like you said, for that one race cameo in 2017 because Fernando Alonso was off chasing the what is it called? The Triple Crown? I think triple is that what crown. they call it? The yeah. Triple Crown? Yeah. Uh, he was off chasing his vision or dream of achieving the Triple Crown, and he got the one race one race call. It also just speaks to what a chaotic mess McLaren was, that they would permit mm. one of their drivers to step out on a contractually <laughs> obligated race midseason. But yeah, that's interesting. So if he ever does make a comeback in his early 50s, he's going to have that three-place grid penalty to serve. Yeah, that's kind of a cool stat, I think. Okay, this is another cool one that you found, and this is uh, courtesy of F1 Charts. And this is front row lockouts, uh, conversions, and converting those into one-two finishes. So this goes from uh, the season's 1997 to 2022. So the teams that have the, the that lead the way, Mercedes has 41 front row lockouts that are converted into one-two wow. finishes. Just wow. And th- that is just a mind-blowing stat. They are miles ahead of the team that is in second place, and that is Ferrari, who have 15. And that goes back to the Michael Schumacher era when they were dominant, just like uh, Mercedes have been. Maybe not quite as long, but still, they were absolutely dominant in their heyday in the early 2000s and late 1990s. McLaren has nine. Red Bull has six. Williams has one. And Braun GP has one. I mean, Red Bull, I find that kind of an interesting stat, too. I mean, of course, the last season in a bit, they've been back on top or towards the top. But I mean, let's go back a, a decade when Sebastian Vettel won his four championships uh, with uh, with Red Bull. I I thought that total for for them would have been a little bit higher. So not too surprising when you break it down by season. The most one two finishes converted into, or sorry, front row lockouts converted into one two finishes was uh, 2015 when Mercedes had 12. 2014 they had eight. 2016 they had seven. 2019 they had six. 
2020, they only had four. And then it sort of goes down from there. Uh, McLaren had 498. Ferrari had four in 2004 and 2002. Mercedes had three in 2018, which is kind of an interesting one. But remember that one kind of... uh, that, that was a pretty good battle with Ferrari that year. McLaren had three in 2007. Red Bull had two in a 2011 and 2013. Ferrari had two in 2017. And then there's a whole pile that then you get down to the ones that uh, you got Williams and Red Bull and Mercedes only had one. Uh, this is, the, I think, the one that really stands out. In 2017, Mercedes only had one front row lockout converted into a one-two finish. And you could argue 2017 would have been, you know, well, I think they've pretty much been at the, you know, the zenith, the, the apex of their power <laughs> ever since 2014. But that, that 2017 year kind of sticks out a little bit to me. Do you do you know why this is such a powerful visual to me? And I think you did a great job of summarizing this chart. Again, shout out to F1 Charts on Instagram. But when you look at the teams um, and their season, so the, the number of times per season they were able to achieve that one-two finish in qualifying and then kind of complete the complete the mission by finishing one, two in the race. Like Mercedes 2015, like you said, 12 times, 2014, eight times, and 2016, seven times. I watched all of those races and mm-hmm. obviously I was cheering for Lewis, but what a miserable time that would have been to be a Formula One fan. If you weren't specifically a Mercedes fan and you weren't specifically a Lewis Hamilton fan, Formula One must have been unwatchable. And you know, Tim Haraney, we were talking about some of those early years of the hybrid era with Tim Haraney recently, and he was reminding us that, you know, Mercedes used to lap the field up to fourth or fifth place like the Mm -hmm. fifth place finisher sometimes was lapped by lewis and or nico which was absurd so again we talk about competitive parity and is there enough of it and is the racing close enough it is light years ahead of where we were in 2014 2015 and 2016 like let's just those are those are the dark the dark years of Formula One. Again, <laughs> all the credit in the world to Mercedes and Lewis for putting together a phenomenal package, but it certainly wasn't a good TV product. Yet, most of us, uh, some of us, I wouldn't say most of us, yet most of us are still here, that not with the withstanding. But I mean, yeah, you got to tip your hat to them, even if you're not a Mercedes or a Lewis Hamilton fan, because what they did was unprecedented, and it just didn't happen by accident. I mean, they were really that good uh, for, for a reason, right? Absolutely. Oh, 100%. And I take nothing away from Mercedes and Total and Lewis and Nico and the whole organization. But yeah, just in terms of that competitive competitive balance. There certainly wasn't any in those early years of the hybrid era. Yeah. Uh, The next uh, cool stat comes from F1 Stats Guru. And this is a cool one. This is corners per circuit. So it's broken down a really neat graphic has the the, the the track with the least amount of corners to the track that has the most. So on the low end, you have Spielberg, Red Bull Ring, where, which we were just at two weeks ago, 10 corners. You've got Jeddah and Saudi Arabia on the high side with 27. And then you've got the, the rest all kind of like clumped in the middle. You have Monza with the 11, which is the second fewest, Singapore, which is the second most at 23. And then they go anywhere from 14 to 20. So on the low side, you got Budapest, Montreal, Zonfort with 14. On the high side, again, you got Baku 
and Austin Circuit of the Americas has 20. But it's pretty interesting when you see some of these uh, tracks in between, you know, I I try to keep, uh, I I don't really know all the corners and everything by heart, but uh, Silverstone with 18 corners, that kind of seems like a little bit more than than I I seem to give uh, Silverstone respect for. But then when I sit down and think about the track and kind of go over a lap in my mind, it's like, yeah, I guess there would be because Monza and Silverstone, I consider those uh, power circuits. Monza, I mean, there really is hardly any quarters on it, but Silverstone, it, I think it's got a bit of a, a misleading you know, amount of corners to it just because it's such a fast flat out track as well. And, you know, one of the best uh, out there. Spa, you know, is a long one, 19 corners. Imola, 19. That's kind of an interesting one. Monaco, 19, which is it's kind of interesting. We have Spa and Monaco, probably one of the longest circuits to one of the shortest circuits with the, the same amount of corners. But that doesn't really mean anything, but kind of a cool stat nonetheless. That. That Jetta stat is phenomenal, right? Like you talk right? about Singapore, yeah. 23 laps, and then the next closest is Baku and Austin with 20 apiece, and Jetta with 27. And it's not that Jetta is a ultra tight, compact, low speed, so low speed, low speed circuit. It is technically the fastest street circuit on the calendar, but it combines power sectors with some really technical corners and again it's also incredibly hot which is why it's one of the night races jetta must just be one of the most physically demanding races on the calendar like it is a physically you know when you and i are navigating the parking lot at walmart and we've got to turn into a parking (laughs) spot eh, we've got we've got power steering and air conditioning it's not that much but when you've got to make 27 turns per lap when you're trying to rotate these massive beasts of a formula one car while competing for position on track with other cars they must be that they being the drivers must be exhausted by the time they're done that but again jet is one of my favorite races on the calendar and that's just one of the things that makes that track special yeah yeah very cool stat now the the last uh graphic that uh, we have here again from f1 charts on instagram this one's pretty cool too so this is the delta between points scored in 2022 compared to this time in uh, 2021 so after 11 races Ferrari leads the way. They are up 115 points compared to where they were this time last year. Alfa Romeo is second. I think this is an impressive one. 46 points up on where they were a year ago. Red Bull, 45 points. Haas, this is an impressive one. They're 31 points ahead of where they were a year ago. Alpine is pretty much uh, broken even with a plus one. And now we start going into the negative side of the the graphic. Williams is down seven points. Aston Martin down 30. Alpha Tauri, this is a bit of a surprising one. Just testifies how good they were a year ago. They're down 30, sorry, 41 points. Mercedes second from the bottom, 59 points less than this time in 2021. And then the big shocker, McLaren, 89 points down compared to a year ago. That is a shocking statistic. In business, one of the most important metrics that we look at is comparable growth. How is our growth versus the prior year? How is our growth versus the prior year? And this kind of encapsulates that from a performance perspective in the championship. But you're right, Ferrari plus 115 points. And we see that playing out on the track. The only thing that makes that number questionable is that it should be much higher, if not for some really, really inexcusable strategy errors from, Absolutely. from that team. 
And and I think the other big one here too is we probably haven't talked enough about Alpha Tauri this year. They mm-hmm. they've really struggled uh, on the track, and Gasly hasn't been the Gasly that we know. But we also know that they haven't been getting a strong flow of upgrades. Although I think they're expecting their first upgrade package this weekend, at least their first upgrade package I think since Imola. But yeah, Ferrari plus one plus 115, McLaren negative 89. I don't think we need to spend any time talking about that. We've uh, exhausted the McLaren conversation this year. But yeah, a cool chart overall. Yeah, totally. Hey, Mark, why don't we take a quick break here? We'll come back. We'll dive into the news. First of all, we're going to talk about the Toronto Indy very briefly because there's an interesting stat and a tie into Formula One with that race. We'll do so and get into the rest of the news after this very short break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just one moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, welcome back. And yes, time to finally dive into the Formula One and motor racing news of the week. So last weekend was the Toronto Honda Indy, and Scott Dixon was. Uh, won that race and this is an interesting stat but he's been waiting for over a year to join mario and dreddy in second place on indy's cars career wins list so the only person ahead of him is the legendary sorry legendary aj foyt and the six-time indy cars champion finally snapped a 22 race winless streak on sunday in to when he had or he held off a pole sitter colton herda and felix rosenquist at, at a late restart and uh, this was the first race back in the center of the universe as we so lovingly refer to Toronto in Canada or the Big Smoke or Hogtown or a bunch of other names. <laughs> it was just the first time that they had the Indy back in Toronto in three years because of COVID and joking all aside, it was great to see it back and that's a, a pretty impressive stat to say that I've got as many races or race wins now as Mario Andretti and all I have to do now is chase down AJ Foyt, which you know, still probably a bit of a task uh, for, for Scott Dixon. 
All right, we'll try this again, everybody. Let's uh, throw it now over to the live stream to everybody in the chat. Uh, we've got Connie, we've got Rocky, we've got Tomcat Power 2, Yanko, Daniel, guys. While we wait for Mark to, to rejoin the, the, uh, the, the session, let's talk now about uh, the French Grand Prix. So in addition to that, uh, you can also, um, let's throw the floor open, see if anybody's got any questions, any comments or anything like that. And we'll just wait uh, for Mark to, to try and sh- sort out the gremlins on uh, on his side. So I think uh, we're up and running at least uh, for, for the time being. We'll try and uh, keep it going here until uh, in the meantime. So, okay, you guys are hearing me in the live stream. That's great. So uh, let's have a, well, I wouldn't say a little bit of fun without Mark, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best. I was saying or thinking at least in the meantime, let's talk about uh, the, the French Grand Prix this weekend. Usually we're going to save that uh, till the end of the show, uh, but perhaps in the meantime, I can just to keep going uh, with this and it uh, sounds like the, the, the French Grand Prix might be coming to an end uh, we still have the, the, the possibility of some uh, other races joining the calendar for next year. I do have some mixed uh, feelings about uh, Circuit Paul Ricard. I think uh, it's going to, I, I don't think it really quite lived up to to my hopes and expectations, um, especially the Mistral straight along the back there is spoiled by turns 8 and 9, that chicane obviously they they put that in for, for, for safety reasons, but I don't know it's a very tight narrow not very wide track despite it being about three just over three and a half miles long 5.84 kilometers and a race length of 192.4 miles or 309.7 kilometers long 53 lap race oh here we go we got hammy back we'll bring him back in but we'll keep going with our, our french grand prix preview so last race in 2021, we had uh, Max Verstappen on pole. Max won the race. Lewis Hamilton was second. Sergio Perez was third. Fastest lap last year was set by Max Verstappen. It was 136.404. So just going back to the live stream now, Connie is asking, do you think it's going to live up to the last two races? And I think, you know, Connie, that might be a question for Ferrari. They've won the last two races in a row. They dropped a lot of points or left a lot of points out on the track uh, over the previous half dozen races or so i mean what is the gap now between charles and max something like 38 points yeah that's only a a race win in change so it's not impossible however charles would have to have a bit of luck to close that uh, that gap to max and uh, max would start to have to have some you know, some bad weekends like he did, say, at uh, at Silverstone a couple of weeks ago or some DNFs uh, for Charles to 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 really close that gap. And, you know, as we've seen throughout the year, that uh, there, there's been a lot of issues with the Ferrari. They've made some bad calls on the pit wall. They've uh, had some mechanical problems. The drivers themselves have had some incidents out on the track. So they would have to turn around the misfortune from the uh, from from the rest of the season so um connie's also mentioned with two french drivers in formula one would be sad to lose it uh, referring to the french grand prix and i can uh, completely second uh, that and uh, you know it would be disappointed to see it go but maybe not uh, such a bad thing if it is uh you know we get some you know superior tracks uh, on the uh, on the calendar so pirelli is bringing their mid-range tires the c2 hard c3 medium and the c4 soft and after the last two weekends i'm not really too sure to who to pick this one i mean obviously red bull 
was pretty dominant there for about six or seven races or so and really opened up a gap in both the uh, Drivers' and Constructors' Championship. But since Ferrari's kind of gotten their act together again the past couple of races, makes it a little bit uh, harder to predict, maybe after Austria more than than Silverstone, because Max obviously hit a bit of debris, which uh, damaged his car, and he just wasn't able to, you know, he just didn't have the speed or the handling to to keep up with the front runners uh, after that. But Mark, uh, you're back into the session now. You're all smiles and giggles again. Uh, I know you kind of, well, maybe not by that grimace, but, uh, you know, we try to keep this thing going, although I did try to, to restart it, you know, with my, my microphone muted. So I got a big of egg on my face there. But anything that you want to add, because I've, I've shifted up the agenda here and started to preview the race in your absence and uh, just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. So thank you so much for your patience and for everybody listening at home. We take great pride in our production quality. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend today and I was just talking about, hey, one of the things that we feel that separates our podcast from so many others is production quality. And then, of course, I jinx us and I have terrible <laughs> technological issues here at home tonight. So for everyone at home, I super, super apologize. Yeah, in terms of the French Grand Prix, I'll be honest, it's a race that rejoined the calendar, I think, in 2019 after an extended significant absence. It was always a surprising choice because France is a country that is flush with some pretty historic tracks. But of course, in this case, sure. you had a track owner and an organizer that were eager to bring Formula One to this specific venue in the south of France. To me, it's... It's one of the most um, unattractive looking tracks on the calendar. To me, it's a sea of pavement that's dressed up with blue and red paint. And I get it. The paint is designed to be um, grippy and to slow cars down in lieu of having a gravel runoffs or grass runoff. To me, it's not an attractive track. I think one of the things that is true about the track is that the aggregate itself is very, very smooth. So it's typically a really low degradation track. But I was watching a Formula One segment earlier today with Rosanna Tennant and Will Buxton. And one of the points that Will made, which was pretty, pretty smart, and I hadn't really thought about this, is that that the entire European continent is in an absolute heat dome right now, complete heat wave. And temperatures at and around the track this week have been in the low 40s, so well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit for American listeners at home. And one of the points that they had is that while this is typically a low degradation circuit, given the conditions, it will probably become a high degradation circuit because the heat combined with the heat at the track combined with the compound or compound of the tires will likely result in these things getting torn to pieces. So we may see some interesting things from a uh, pit stop strategy perspective that we don't typically see here. The other couple of things that I think should be interesting to watch is is Mercedes. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were in the UK, we were in Silverstone. And for much of that race, a Williams had the best pace of the entire race. And at one point, it looked like Lewis Hamilton could be in contention for a race win. And that car's only improved since then. And we'll talk about this a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. But Mercedes are again expecting to bring some upgrades this weekend that could make a pretty significant difference. Now, uh, George Russell was interviewed today and he was talking about the fact that he still feels that they're probably a tenth to two tenth, a tenth to a twentieth of a second off of Ferrari and off of Red Bull. But I think he's just being cautious and conservative and, and political. I think Mercedes internally is very, very optimistic about what they could deliver this weekend. They've had two really strong showings. Lewis has run off 
off a slew of podiums at this point. I think the team has scored five podiums in their last six races. They're looking very racy. That car is getting better and better. And George made a comment today that I thought was really interesting. And he said, look, for most of the year, we were just trying to understand the car that we had. Like we, we couldn't even talk about fixing it or improving it or delivering upgrades because we had no idea what we were working with. And he's like, now not only do we understand the car, fundamentally, we understand what we're working with. We know how to improve it and get it to that place where it needs to be. And if you watch the race in Austria, porpoising wasn't an issue for this team. If you flash back to Silverstone, porpoising wasn't an issue for this team. They've solved the porpoising issue. They've got pace back. They've got significant race pace, and they've also solved the the porpoising issue. So in terms of driver comfort, especially when it comes to taking a lot of speed into corners, they're in an entirely different place. And I think both George and Lewis are probably optimistic now in a way that they haven't been all year. And I think when you consider George's really strong performances earlier in the year, like he was scoring podiums and scoring top five finishes when really with that car, they probably didn't have any business scoring them. They've been able to continue accumulating points despite the fact that I think anyone at Brackley or Bricksworth would say that this car is a disaster. And now all of a sudden, they solve the car. They understand the car. They're able to deliver some meaningful upgrades. Lewis is in a great headspace. George has been in a great headspace all season. I think this team could be a real threat. And the question I have for you, and I was eager to pose this to you coming into this Mm -hmm. podcast is, you know, five races ago, I think the idea of Mercedes scoring a race victory this year would be absurd. Now, what do you think the chances are? Like, is there a 50% chance they score a race victory this year, a 70% chance? Because like I said, if you go back to Monaco, I would have put no money on them scoring a race win this year. Now, to me, it seems comprehensible. Yeah, I would totally agree with that statement, uh, whether or not it's greater than 50%. I'm I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit here and see what, you know, how this actually translates into performance and how do they measure up against everyone else. But I've kind of shifted from the position that, based on what we saw at the beginning of the year up until a couple of weeks ago, where it seemed unlikely at best that they would uh, win a race this year in 2022, which seems absolutely illogical and uh, and, and mind-boggling uh, to, uh, to say that, it seems like it actually could be feasible. Like you say, whether or not it happens, I don't know. Would this be the track where it might happen? Good question, uh, but certainly I think that there there is quite a bit of a uh, you know likelihood that it'll happen again before the uh, the the end of the season. So I also just uh, quickly, uh, Mark, uh, before we uh, we move on here, before we go into another break, I just wanted to mention uh, one other thing. Uh, you did touch on the on the issue of the, the 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 hot weather in Europe. I did check the 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 weather forecast before we sat down to um, to record tonight. So the it has cooled significantly uh, over the past uh, couple of days, or at least it's uh, it's going to by by the weekend. So we're looking uh, right now for Saturday and Sunday afternoon at Circuit uh, Paul Ricard. It's going to be about 32 degrees uh, Celsius, which uh, translates to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, wind is going to be about 10 to 12 miles per hour coming from the south to southwest. Obviously, uh, it's July, end of July. It's uh, in the south of France. It's summer. So even without the you know the, the, the hot, hot weather, this is just a time of year where it's just not going to rain, period. And uh, of course, you know, looking at the, uh, the chance of uh, precipitation, it's like less than no, <laughs> 0%. So so we're going to have a hot, dry race on Sunday, like you mentioned. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see, even though 
it's cooled, you know, eight to ten degrees to com- or Celsius compared to where where it was earlier this week. It's still going to be hot, and it'll be interesting to see what the track temperature is. You know, has the track cooled a little bit? How much of the you know you know the the uh, the, the radiant heat has it stored in the surface over the uh, you know the course of the the last several days in the heat wave? I mean, it is going to be hard and or hot. I'm just wondering. Uh, based on what you're saying, what uh, that that's going to translate into in terms of uh, tire degradation. Uh, did you catch uh, what I was saying just now about um, you, you kind of disappeared from the screen there for a moment, uh, but I don't think you dropped off the uh, the, the recording session here. Um, what did you make of my comments regarding the the the, the Mercedes? Uh, possibility for win i i just i i think it'll happen before the end of the year i just don't know if it's going to be this weekend but we should get a good indication of how they've been able to close that gap to ferrari at red bull or you know have they been able to uh extend that gap i mean is is the change a meaningful one or have they just increased relative to everyone else and the other two teams have also found to you know some performance gains here or there it's 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 going to be interesting to watch that's that's a great point, right? Like we know Ferrari is continuing to bring upgrades and that rear wing that they added a couple of weeks ago is making a significant difference. You're right that if they do manage to win a Grand Prix this year and maybe they win more than one, maybe they don't win any, it probably won't be this weekend. It could be. But if you look at the balance of the calendar, it's a lot of power hungry tracks. So we've got France, Hungary, Belgium, we've got Zandvoort, We've got Monza. We've got Singapore, where we haven't been, obviously, since 2019. We're going back mm-hmm. to Japan, where we haven't been since 2019. Then we're in Austin. Then we're in Mexico City. Then we're in Brazil. Then we're in Abu Dhabi. So again, there's still 11 races left. And when you consider the amount of improvement that Mercedes has been able to incorporate into that car so far, there's no reason to think that they won't continue to build on that. But there's a couple of points that you just hit on that could make that more difficult. One of which is, of course, Red Bull and Ferrari still have the opportunity to improve their cars. They're not staying. Mm -hmm. still. They've not stopped development. But the one thing that could prove to be a ceiling for all of these teams will be the cost cap. Eventually, these teams are going to run into that cost cap and development on the current car will come to a screeching, no pun intended, but a screeching halt. I have a feeling that they're going to be able to score a race win this season. But to your point, uh, I would agree that it's probably not going to be this weekend. And for everyone listening at home, please know as well that my optimism and my enthusiasm for Mercedes demonstrating some greater competitiveness is less to do with me cheering for them to win as it is wanting to see a third team in the mix and hoping that the championship is decided later in the season as opposed to earlier. And it's like more likely to be decided later in the championship if you have a third team that's taking points off of the top two teams in the championship. I'm, I'm also kind of wondering, too, uh, when I kind of look at the uh, remaining races uh, for this year, that if you're a Mercedes, I mean, you don't have the the advantage that you've had for nearly the past decade. So maybe you play it a little bit uh, strategically. Maybe you try to target specific races where if it comes down to like a power track like Monza or Spa, where, you know, the, the lap is fairly long, there's lots of straight sections. I mean, there's going to be advantage to Red Bull and Ferrari there based on what we've seen through the first 11 races. But I mean, if you can get out in front in say, if you can qualify well in Hungary or maybe Singapore or a track like that, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say easier or easier to defend, but relatively speaking, we That's don't see point. as 
yeah, we, we don't see as much overtaking a track so like that. So maybe that's where you focus and just uh, try and be strategic as to where you might uh, get a race uh, win. Uh, Mark, why don't we, uh, after this uh, sort of what uh, you know, turbulent second portion to the show, why don't we take another <laughs> uh, another quick break and then we'll we'll get back on track, pun intended, and uh, pick up uh, the news on the other side. So guys, uh, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the show, and let's uh, hope that this uh, segment goes a little bit smoother than the previous one. Uh, thank you all for for hanging out, especially those of you who are still hanging in there on the live stream over on uh, YouTube. Uh, do not have the benefit of uh, you know some post production value of splicing this uh, this hot mess together. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, appreciate uh, everybody that uh, that uh, decided to stay on. So, uh, by the, the live way, stream my, yeah, to put this into an F one specific or an F one related analogy, uh, let's imagine an F one driver crashes and qualifying. All the mechanics' hands are up in the air because they know they've got a long night putting that car back together. <laughs> my technical issues today is the equivalent of me crashing this podcast because it means you've got <laughs> a lot of work lined up for you. You've got a late night ahead of you to piece this together somehow. Yeah, if, if um, you know, let, let's just say that. Well, let's let's not say anything at all. <laughs> Anyways, this is this is not really one I really want to. Uh, no, I was hoping we wouldn't have to talk about this subject uh, again this week, but I think uh, we should. I mean, uh, just based on the fact that uh, we, we were talking about uh, the issues and the the, the, the problems with uh, bad behavior, racist comments, homophobic comments, etc., at the uh, the Red Bull Ring the other weekend, and just the fact that we said that you know if if you sweep these things under the rug and you don't talk about them because they they might be uncomfortable for you or other people, that doesn't do anything to shine a light on it, and just to once again to to restate for the umpteenth time that behavior and actions like this, even though we all basically know this, is still being perpetuated by a very very small minority but this one's on on a bit of a different level because this actually happened within um, or you know th- these are claims ba- uh, made by uh, a former employee of Aston Martin and uh, where he said he uh, suffered a lot of uh, racist and homo- homophobic abuse at uh, at Aston Martin um the team say that his uh, complaints were acted uh, upon and appropriate sh- sanctions were imposed but this is uh, you know I find this really troubling um, you know this is uh, a fellow by the name of Aiden Lau, who's uh, of a uh, mixed uh, race and ethnicity, is born in South Africa. He worked as a laminator building parts for Sebastian Vettel's car at uh, Aston Martin's uh, base, their factory next to Silverstone. So apparently verbal abuse started after he joined the team as a, a suppi- supplier's agency contractor earlier this year. And uh, he had to say, quote, before I even walked into my working environment, that's when I was told, look, if you've got a problem with how we speak here, it's just how we speak. Um and he goes on to say, I wasn't referred to as Andy or anything like that. I was called 
you know, uh, racially offensive slurs. Obviously, we're not even going to speculate what that might be. That is what I was referred to. It was towards the end of the, the duration that I had finally processed what was happening, end quote. So he says on top of that, um, that uh, he suffered homophobic uh, abuse because uh, he said that, uh, you know, uh, he had uh, mentioned to somebody that he, he had a, a boyfriend in his teen years and then everything uh, changed after that. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately, that uh, degraded from there. So this is something that's uh, really been in focus uh, quite recently. I mean, we, we talked uh, several weeks ago how uh, Nelson Piquet had uh, made some very, very offensive comments about uh, Lewis Hamilton. He kind of brushed it off and said it was a one-off thing, but apparently th- this was an interview he did on a, a Portuguese language uh, podcast. Turned out it wasn't just one accidental slip of the tongue. It was uh, an interview full of offensive uh, comments that we were talking uh, last week or two weeks ago about some of the horrible uh, behavior at uh, at the Red Bull ring. So again, it's it's not something pleasant to talk about, but you just can't ignore it either. Um, so anyways, um, Aston Martin said that uh, his contract was terminated due to uh, poor performance and poor timekeeping and was un, uh, you know, was unconnected to the discrimination that uh, he'd uh, ex- uh, you know experienced. He did uh, accept that his uh, performance and uh, punctuality on the job, but uh, he maintains that it was, um, you know, due to some of the abuse that uh, he had uh, faced when he was on the job, which, you know, you could understand that uh, if your job's not a great place to be, that, you know, mentally that's going to put you in a very difficult place as well and psychologically. I certainly don't want to grandstand, but I very much no. agree with you that we cannot we cannot let stories like this wither wither on the vine and disappear into the ether. That we need to talk about these things because we can't allow this type of behavior to normalize. And you and I are very fortunate that you managed to build a platform here, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people download every single episode. And I think we have an obligation and also a privilege in some ways to be able to communicate these stories because we want to get them out because we want to make sure that these behaviors aren't normalized and and that people recognize and appreciate and understand that it's not acceptable. The thing that I find most troubling about this is, and Sky Sports, by the way, also reports that the two individuals specifically that were um, most specifically targeting this individual with those racist and later homophobic slurs and abuse, uh, they've reported that those two individuals are no longer with the organization. So Aston Martin said they'd been sanctioned. Um, I think that means ultimately they've been terminated. But I think what bothers me most about this is it's not that you have two specific people within that organization that are so candid and open and forthcoming with what they believe to be appropriate abuse of an employee it's mm-hmm. that they feel comfortable doing that like what kind of atmosphere environment organization do you work at in 2022 where you feel comfortable openly openly insulting somebody or throwing homophobic or racial slurs at somebody that that's what bothers me the most here so yeah i appreciate hey aston martin you've you've investigated this and those two people have been quote unquote sanctioned or fired but how how broken are you institutionally that this can happen on the shop floor in the factory? Like how how were other people not hearing this? And if they were hearing this, what were they doing about it? That to me is the most bothersome part about this. Not specifically the two people, and that was atrocious, and they should have been sanctioned, they should have been terminated, but rather they lived in an environment where they thought it was okay to do this because nobody was saying otherwise. 
You know, obviously, neither you or I have any insight into what happens on the shop floor, but I can perfectly see a situation in my mind that, you know, when anybody in a supervisory capacity leaves the shop floor and it's just these people left, that uh, that things like that can happen. And as soon as somebody, you know, the, the boss comes back, so to speak, that behavior, you know, completely changes, right? Just like as that person is away, you know, that's that it, you know that's when this horrible abhorrent uh, behavior, you know, manifests and, you know, this, uh, this abuse takes place. I mean, that that's just purely speculation on uh, my behalf. I mean, I'm going to give a a certain benefit of the doubt to, to, to Aston Martin that they didn't know about it uh, beforehand. I mean, they said in a tweet quote, we have a zero tolerance policy on discriminatory behavior of any kind. We were extremely disappointed that two of our suppliers contractors had behaved so appallingly. We acted swiftly and applied our Ziller, zero tolerance policy they no longer work for that supplier therefore end quote so i i'm until i you know unless we hear otherwise i will give them the benefit of the doubt in the meantime that they did not know that this was happening prior to it being brought to their their attention i just hope that it didn't uh, go on longer than necessary and that as bad and as disappointing and horrible it is to hear this story I hope it's only just limited to this one incident and it's not something that's, you know, you know, rampant or occurring with more frequency inside that organization. I, 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 I would be surprised if it was, but who's to say we're not, we're not in there. I, and I really hope that they, they snuffed it out right, right here and now. I think that's fair. And I think it's fair because this circumstance is different than some of the others we've seen where somebody will be forthcoming with an experience that they've had. And suddenly the organization has to be reactive or responsive to that. One of the things that is, to your point, optimistic about this is this individual had a horrendous experience and faced mm-hmm. abuse that he should never have had to face. But at exactly. least when he came forward with his with his stories, Aston Martin was quick to acknowledge that, hey, yes, we investigated it. It absolutely did happen. And here's what we've done about it. It wasn't this situation where, hey, look, you know what? We need to investigate this. We need to put a panel together. They were very clear and decisive that 100% it happened. So I appreciate their honesty and their transparency. I just I, I just worry about the atmosphere that could have nurtured this type of abuse. And maybe they were contractors and, and maybe they were new to the organization. Um, so again, to your point, we've got some experience with Aston Martin and obviously Sebastian Vettel's there, um, and Martin Bishop is there, and there's some really great people in that organization that mm-hmm. socially are doing some really great things. So I don't think that this is an institutional issue. Hopefully, it was a pocket within the organization where this was happening, and hopefully, to your point, it's now been permanently snuffed out. But I still think it's good that this individual came forward because I think this is still a conversation we need to have. Oh, yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, just uh, let's put it uh, in a different light. Could you imagine how upset you or I would be if we were employees of Aston Martin or any other team or any other organization, not not necessarily even in Formula One, if something like that uh, came to like, even, you know, in in my day-to-day life at at work professionally, I would be really, really angry and upset to hear about that, especially if these are people that I'm interacting and maybe supervising on a a daily basis to find out that this stuff's going on behind my back after I leave 
leave the shop floor or whatever, I would be furious at that uh, to, to find right. out that this sort of thing is going on. And, uh, you know, a, a person is being subjected to a, a abuse like that. It just uh, it, it really upsets me. So I, I'm glad that uh, that Aston Martin did the right thing in a swift manner. And like I say, hopefully it's uh, been uh, put an end to because like you say, there's a lot of great people within the team that uh, that are using their position to stand up for different social issues and um, just disappointing that uh, th- this uh, story did come out and did come to light. But hey, if we let it sit in the dark where it festers, that's not a good place to be as well. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, item. So Ferrari, now just going back, we were talking uh, in the previous section just uh, about uh, Mercedes and you asked me whether or not uh, they're going to win a race this year. We discussed that and one of the things that we brought up is, okay, they're going to be upgrading the Mercedes uh, for for this weekend and, uh, you know, as much as possible throughout the, uh, the, the rest of the year, of course. And, but the, the one question we had is, how is that going to compare to uh, Red Bull and Ferrari? Now, Ferrari believe that their performance deficit to Red Bull is now what they're calling negligible. And it's it's kind of interesting because uh, Max Verstappen was uh, saying earlier this week that just kind of comparing both of the cars, that they, they feel that, that, that Ferrari actually has the better car. They have... Um, They've had more dominant weekends compared to, say, uh, Red Bull, where Red Bull is, you know, they've had some very good weekends. Of course, they've won a lot of races uh, this year, but just from the, the point of view of being able to check the the, the boxes off the checklist to say, well, we did this, we did this, that we did this. They kind of uh, f- feel like that uh, Ferrari have had more of those weekends where they accomplished more, even though they've probably made more negative uh, headlines in terms of, uh, you know, bad calls on the pit wall or DNFs and mechanical issues and all that sort of stuff. But it really, I think, highlights the potential of what this season could have been and hopefully still can be. Because if you look at the Delta in both championships, Ferrari has been able to narrow those those gaps. I wouldn't say, you know, substantially, but significantly enough to at least to indicate to me, I'm sure to you and all the the, the other listeners out there, that perhaps that uh, Red Bull haven't got the season uh, sewn up uh, quite yet. We still have a long way to go before we even hit the uh, the, the summer break. Here we got another race afterward. Then we got a completely, you know, basically a new season to start at the end of August when we get to Spa. So there's a lot left to to, to race for. And uh, Connie's just asking in the uh, in the live chat, will both Ferrari cars finish this race? And that really is a $64,000 question. Okay, maybe their performance deficit to Red Bull is negligible. Maybe they do have the better car, uh, as uh, you know, suggested by uh, Red Bull's uh, Max Verstappen. But if these performance and these reliability gremlins keep coming back to haunt the team and ha- haunting Charles, ha- haunting Carlos, one or both of them every weekend, then it's a bit of a moot point. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a a bird in the fist and a rock in the mountain. That's not an expression. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's very very late. But uh, according to RaceFans.net, uh, Matteo Bonato believes that the team's latest upgrade has addressed its most significant deficit to its rivals. And I quote: "We had a disadvantage compared to the Red Bull, no doubt," says Matteo Bonato, in terms of straight line speed, especially in DRS zones. So, in terms of the power of the DRS compared to ours, we worked on it. We built a new rear wing that we introduced as first only on one example, which was on Charles' car in Canada. We've had it on both cars since the UK. And with that new rear wing, we believe we are significantly more competitive. So they believe they've negated the top line speed uh, advantage that Red Bull clearly had. 
But to your point, is that enough if they're going to struggle with reliability issues with the power unit and strategy issues? Does it even matter? Because to your point, the, the championship should be oh so much closer. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's startling that it's as close as it is. And you said earlier tonight that the, the point deficit or the delta between Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen is 38 points. Well, Max has six wins on the season. And before Charles won in Austria, he'd been what? five Grand Prix without a podium. Like it's startling that the championship Mm -hmm. is as close as it is. And you're right. We have a couple of races here before the summer break. We're in France and then we're in Hungary. Then we pause and then we come back at Spa. And to your point, the back half of the season or the back third is like an entirely new championship in and of itself. So I think the only thing we can hope is that the Ferraris don't have any strategy blunders in the next two Grand Prix and they show a strong degree of reliability. And if Mercedes is competitive, that could really throw a spanner in the gears of the the championship because I think you like me want nothing more to, than to see a championship that's really close and unpredictable. Yeah, yeah, and and that that is uh, I think a great point that uh, that you make. Just all the points that Charles wasn't collecting yet the the, the gap in the championship is only thirty eight points. I mean that that's a big gap. Don't get me wrong. But For considering sure. all the points that uh, that he wasn't able to collect in that really really difficult stretch that he went through. It really is quite astounding that it isn't twice as big when you think about it. And I guess, you know, you got to go back maybe to the first couple of races of the year when Max was having his own uh, own issues, when Charles was able to collect more points. And it just goes to underline once again the fact that a Formula One season, especially in this modern era with 20 plus races in a season, it really is about the long haul. It really is that 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 the the story that it's a marathon. And okay, you have the ability maybe to have a, a like a bad weekend here and there and not be completely ruled out of the championship uh, equation because the chances are that your rival is going to have a bad weekend here or there unless you're a Mercedes driver from 2014 to 2021 basically i don't i mean there was that one time was it a couple 3 years ago when they had that double dnf at uh, in in austria it was like the first time they had a double dnf at, at a grand prix since something ridiculous like 19 1955 or 1953 or something, uh, which is an incredible uh, statistic. But yeah, it, it, again, the, the real big question for Ferrari is, you know, can they keep both these cars from lap one to lap the end of lap 53 when it really counts? And, you know, by the time we hit the checkered flag on Sunday afternoon, where are they going to be relative to the Red Bull cars and relative uh, to to Mercedes? I mean, performance on paper is one thing. It's performance and re- reliability on the track on a Sunday afternoon that really uh, tells the the, the the story. Now, talking about uh, just going back to uh, Mercedes again, uh, they believe that uh, the, the best uh, upgrades are yet to, to come or the, the, the upgrades that they're now starting to apply on the car right now. So um, Red Bull uh, was saying that um, that they believe that the gap to Ferrari and Red Bull is about two to three tenths of a second, which, you know, is literally the blink of an eye for myself and, <laughs> and for yourself and everybody else. But in Formula One, that really is a big gap. And it really is amazing when you, when you think about it. Say 
for example, that uh, let's just say for argument's sake, an average lap on a Formula One sec or track would let's just um, pick an average. Say it's about a minute thirty to a minute forty, regardless of the track, right? I mean, I know that uh, Red Bull uh, uh, ring is on the low side at about well, I know qualifying is about one hundred five, and the race is about one ten. Then you get tra- uh, tracks like Spa and uh, and uh, Baku, which are pushing about two minutes uh, a lap. So let's let's call it about a minute thirty-five, minute forty for an average uh, lap time, and to think that uh, that cars at the end of a lap even the you know the, i'm going to use the inverted comments here the commas here that uh, the, the slow cars are maybe a second behind that's still <laughs> in 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 normal time frames that 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 the rest of the world operates and that's nothing the blink of an eye but that really is such a huge gap in motor racing especially formula one and to hear it admission from from total wolf that that's what the gap between the mercedes and to to red bull uh, is is for me almost I find hard to comprehend that, especially how dominant they, this team has been over the past decade. I mean, when, when you were going back and we were looking at that graphic at the beginning of the show, you were talking about how back in 14, 15, 16, whatever it was, Nico and, and Lewis were basically lapping the entire uh, the the entire field in front of them or behind them is just um, it's it's incredible. Now the tables have been uh, turned for to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of thoughts on on this one. And I just want to give a shout out to AMUS, which is a a great German publication. Uh, They've written that Mercedes is going to continue to bring some significant upgrades. But what Mercedes is teasing is that the upgrades that they're going to be bringing over the next two races will not be visible to the naked eye, which means that Mm. it's not going to be something aerodynamic. It's not a front wing. It's not the side pods. It's not the rear wing. It's speculated that what they're going to be bringing is a reworked rear suspension. So not something that we can see, but something that could potentially deliver a much, much, much better high-level, high-end speed through corners because the suspension, of course, helps keep the car planted and and flat and allows the cars to carry much more speed through the corner. So that is itself very, very interesting. But otherwise, I certainly agree with, with all of your points there. And just the one piece on that as well, when you hear that you're a tenth of a second slower than another car on the track, in isolation, if you look at a single lap in isolation, that's nothing. But when you consider that 10, if you, if you multiply that over the 50 laps and I'm terrible at math and articulating mm-hmm. math, but if you're, if the gap between you and the car in front of you is one tenth of a second over 50 laps, that's a five second Delta. That is an eternity in formula one. So if you can get it down to less than a 10th of a second, that's good because if it's much greater than that, you have to bank on teams in front of you making errors and having reliability issues and having pit stop errors. Um, Ultimately, I think Mercedes is getting closer and closer to the Delta and the baselines being set by Ferrari and Red Bull, but we'll have to see this weekend just how close they've got because they've shown flashes like we saw in Silverstone. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about it too, I mean, time translates into into distance, of course, right? And you think about it, say, and I'm not sure, like, uh, and of course, it's, uh, I guess, it's all uh, completely dependent on on how much. How, you know, two to three tenths of a second is, and the speed that uh, you're going at. But let's just say that you're losing, say, 
15 meters of distance. That gap is including by or increasing by 15 meters per lap. You, you multiply that by it. by 10 laps. That's 150 meters, and you kind of just uh, go up uh, for you know for, from there. So you know over the course, you you can have a couple of laps where you're maybe slower than the car in front of you, and but at some point that gap just becomes too big. You you can close up a couple of tenths, a half a second here or there, but you know, when you're starting to look at closing multiple second gaps, you know, you're really going to have to do something very, very special. Or more to your point, you're going to have to maybe hope that uh, you know the the car in front of you has you know incidents on the track you know maybe you know they they get their braking point wrong you know they they go into a corner funny or come out of a corner funny they get held up by a back marker they have a you know a muddled up pit stop and they lose some time whatever and but you know at, at that point the situation is beyond your control if you're ha- you know, hoping that one of your competitors you know, <laughs> has something unfortunate happen to them then that's not a good place uh, to to be when it's completely out of uh, your hand now let's move on to the next story mark i know that this has uh, been a bit of our favorite uh, subject uh, for for you and i over the the, the weeks and months uh, you know kind of leading up to this and this is now speculation and i know you're all over this stuff you know the techie part to formula one is uh, th- this is like your th- this is all hamilton right here so uh, obviously the engine regulations for 2026 and beyond have been discussed and they've you know they haven't been agreed upon yet but apparently the sticking point at the moment is over pistons and test benches. Do you want to elaborate on that? Or shall I clumsily try and wade through this one? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. No, I'm excited to talk about this one, even though we've been talking about it for an eternity. So what we know, just to back it up, is we are in the new era of Formula One regulations. And what we saw for this year is an entirely new chassis, an entirely new aero concept. We're seeing downforce generated by the floor of the car. We're seeing new wheels. We're seeing new suspensions. That's all the change. But the power units that are in the cars right now are 99% or shared 99.9% of the components with the power units that we had in the cars last year. And that will remain unchanged in 23, 24, 25. As of say, September 1st, those power units are frozen. You will be able to do nothing to them except for changes based on reliability. Now in 2026, Formula One is introducing a new power unit as they do. Prior to 2014, we were rocking a naturally aspirated V8. Before that, we had a V10. In 2014, we introduced the super complex hybrid turbo V6. Now, in 2026, we're going to get a new engine formula. That's how Formula One works. They refresh the power units every couple of years. Now, this is a particularly sensitive one because the new power unit has to be simplified and it has to be simplified for a couple of reasons. One, it needs to be compatible with the reality of the fact that we're living in a cost cap era. The other thing is that we've been talking about Audi and Porsche for an eternity. And we keep talking about whether they're joining Formula One, how they're going to join Formula One, when they're going to join Formula One. And the honest fact of the matter is, is that neither Porsche 
nor Audi are willing to put their name on the dotted line until the 2026 power unit specifications are finalized. And I think a lot of people, especially in Formula One, are getting incredibly frustrated and incredibly agitated by how long this process is taking. So it is the FIA's principal role to define the engine formula for 2026, and it's taking forever. Now, all of the existing teams have made huge concessions to creating a simplified engine formula. And you and I have talked about this before. Currently, it's a dual hybrid system. We've got an MGUK, which generates electricity from kinetic energy. And you have the MGUH, which uh, is kind of that component within the split turbo. And it generates electricity or energy from wasted exhaust gases from the turbo. And it also allows the turbo to spin the turbine without any turbo lag. So it does some really cool things. But the MGUH is incredibly expensive, incredibly complex, and will never appear in a road car. So Formula One teams, the established teams that have already spent hundreds of billions of dollars developing this technology said, hey, we're willing to sacrifice the MGUH, take it out of the engine formula if that's what it takes to encourage other manufacturers to come into the sport. So now we're close. We have Audi, we have Porsche, and we have possibly Honda now willing to sign up for the 2026 engine regulations. However, it is taking forever for the FIA to finalize it. Now, What's really making people nervous is the fact that Audi and Porsche may potentially be getting cold feet and they may be themselves growing frustrated. So you have the teams like Ferrari and Mercedes and Red Bull that compromised and compromised and compromised to get this simplified formula. And they're frustrated that it hasn't been finalized. You have Formula One frustrated because they want to finalize it so all of their teams can start developing this power unit. And then you have new teams that are frustrated because they ultimately have to be able to commit to their boards of directors whether they're going to be going forward. Now, it's being held up by a couple of things. At this point, it's understood that the final say the final decision is within the with the president of the FIA. So the Formula One is putting a ton of pressure on him. Now, there's a couple of components that are still at play here. One is whether the new power units are going to use steel or aluminum pistons. Today, some of the principal teams, Ferrari, Mercedes, Renault, they all use steel pistons in their engines. Porsche and Audi are campaigning to go aluminum because that's what they're familiar with. That's unlikely a compromise that's going to be made, but that's something that's still outstanding. The bigger one, and this is really important for a new team, is the concept of test benches. So test benches are where engineers test engines without putting them in a car. So just like the aerodynamicists in a team can put a car or one half scale model of a car in a wind tunnel and test their aero te uh, concepts, and they can run computational fluid dynamics or models in their computers to test their aero concepts, the test bed allows an engineer, a mechanic to assemble an engine, put it on a test bench and test it in a confined laboratory environment. They don't have to put it into a car and put it on a track. Now, these test benches are obscenely expensive and neither Porsche nor Audi have invested in them. And they won't until the final 2026 engine regulations have been defined because they're not gonna sign up for the regulations if they don't like them. And they're certainly not going to invest in test benches if they're not convinced they're gonna join Formula One. Now, the other challenge is that as part of these 2026 regulations, it's rumored that one of the rules that's gonna be applied is that teams can't use their test benches for more than one hour a day. So Porsche and Audi, for instance, would be asked to spend tens of millions of dollars 
buying and building test benches so they can in turn build engines for the 2026 season. But the rules will stipulate potentially that they can't use them for more than an hour a day. So Audi and Porsche, imagine this, and I'm lifting this from AMUS, will have to go to their boards and say, look, you know what? As part of this experience of joining Formula One, we need to buy test benches, but we're only allowed to use them for an hour a day, which really throttles their ability and holds back their ability to develop the power units. Now, for all the other teams, they're cool with that. Like, hey, look, whatever that 2026 formula or engine spec is going to be, it's not going to be fundamentally different than what we've done. And we've done most of that work. We're just going to have to drop the MGUH. We need to be able to make sure that we're compatible for the biofuels. We're going to need to swap out some pistons, do some stuff like that. But for Audi and Porsche, they've got to develop a power unit from the ground up. And that's going to be really difficult if they're throttled to an hour a day on the test benches. So all of this is still up in the air. And like I said, Formula One is getting really frustrated by the FIA because they need them to finalize this because they need to know if Porsche and Audi are going to commit. And the other teams need the stability of knowing what type of power unit they're going to be building for 2026. Hmm. Yeah, it really is interesting, too. I mean, if you see one of the quotes here from uh, Mattia Bonato, he has to say uh, the following quote, we have made many compromises, a precise formulation of the rules takes time. The established manufacturers are just as as unwilling as Audi and Porsche and the FIA, which is conducting these discussions, end quote. So uh, I completely understand that, uh, that that something like this is complex, that it takes a lot of time to get it put down on paper. And so, you know, Audi and Porsche have something to take to their uh, to, to, to the board to justify all these costs and ultimately justify you know, why they're going to be or going to go into Formula One. And I, I really hope that it gets uh, sorted out uh, sooner than rather than later, because I mean, it would not be a good look on anyone if uh, Audi and Porsche decide, okay, well, we've committed to Formula One. We want to be in Formula One, but, you know, it's taking too long for them to solidify the rules and the the the, the, the regulations. And, you know, based on the time frame that we have to, to work upon it, it just is not in our interest to proceed anymore because, you know, we, we can't, you know, manu- we can't develop the engine the way that we want to, or we're not going to be competitive to the degree that we would like to be. So that would just be, that would be a disastrous situation. I think that if even, you know, irreparable e- damage. Yeah. Or even if it gets to the point where they, they have to maybe up the ante a little bit and say, you know what, guys, this is taking far too long. If, if, if something doesn't happen, we're going to have to walk away from, you know, our promise to join Formula One. I mean, even if it gets to that point of view, it's, it's not a good look for anyone either. Uh, Formula One sporting chief Ross Braun says all outstanding issues are now at the discretion of the FIA president. And furthermore, and again, this is according to AMUS, Formula One management is pushing for the FIA World Council and FIA president to vote on the rule changes before the end of July. So really within the next 10 days, uh, Audi and Porsche would then have a maximum of 15 days to officially announce their entry. So if the FIA does vote in favor of a engine formula package by the end of the month, we should know then by August 15th when or if Audi and Porsche are going to join Formula One. 
And talking about uh, joining uh, Formula One uh, Kyalami, which has uh, been the home of the South African uh, Grand Prix in uh, years gone by, uh, had a pair of uh, Formula One and FIA delegations uh, visiting uh, this week uh, to visit the facility because they, they still don't have a deal in place to to host a Grand Prix there. I mean, for a while, it just uh, sounded like it was uh, almost a formality that this uh, would get done. But the FIA's head of circuit uh, and rally safety, Stuart Robinson, Pardon me, Robertson was uh, going to inspect uh, the their eligibility for a, an F one Grade one license on Tuesday of this week. They currently comply with the Grade two standards, and they have to do a, quite a bit of upgrading to meet this Grade one standard, and that includes asphalting over fifty thousand square meters of the uh, runoff areas, which are gravel at this point. I work in 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 an industry that uses square meters as units of measurement and i'm trying to do the math in my head as how many square feet or acres that would be let's just say that fifty thousand square meters that needs to be asphalted over is a hell of a lot so they certainly have uh, quite a bit of uh, work to do um people who have knowledge of the situation estimate between four and six million dollars to complete all the upgrades uh, needed, um, but um, th- there's a bit of a time crunch uh, between uh, August and the the date that they're looking at to host a South African Grand Prix in April of uh, next year. So that uh, number, by the way, is a gross understatement. I know. So oh, this is being reported totally, by RacingNotes365.com. You and I both know four to six million dollars. That wouldn't slap new paint on the fences around the track. When you talk about asphalt sure. at 50,000 square meters, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. So it's a beautiful track. It's amazing. And iRacer, I've seen tons of people race it in the Sims. I want to go there. We should go there. But this track requires significant, even though it's effectively a brand new track, it requires significant expansion to accommodate Formula One. The paddock's too small. The runoff errors aren't big enough. They need to remove a lot of the gravel traps, replace it with asphalt significant work needs to be done and it needs to be done potentially in time for April because that's where it's tentatively slotted in the 2023 calendar. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and this is from racingnews365.com, Kyalami is owned by a gentleman named Toby Venter. Now, what's interesting about the arrangement with Formula One is Toby Venter isn't actually going to be the race organizers. He is going to rent the track to a company called South Africa Grand Prix Limited, which is headed by Warren Schechter, nephew of 1979 world champion Jody Schechter. So it's interesting. They're effectively going to Airbnb Kyalami from the owner, Toby Venter, to host Mm. a Formula One Grand Prix. Typically, the track owner and the race organizing group are one in the same, but it's interesting in this sense that the race organizer is going to the track owner, renting it for that specific week, and then hosting the, the, the event. So either way, I think you and I would both be ecstatic if we got to South Africa. The track looks beautiful on TV, yep. but I think it's wildly optimistic that they think they can get it to FIA grade one standard for $6 million. Yeah, I totally agree uh, that that number is grossly understated. So let's see uh, what uh, what comes out of uh, <laughs> out of these visits by the uh, pair of uh, delegations. Now, the next one uh, comes uh, via an interview that Nico Rosberg did with the uh, Eurosport, and uh, in which he reveals the precise moments that his um, his relationship with uh, Lewis Hamilton soured and went uh, south. And it's well, it. 
I'm not really too surprised, uh, you know, at this admission. But he said that their relationship uh, broke down when they both started fighting for the world championship as teammates in Mercedes in uh, 2014. They were childhood friends, and they became teammates at Mercedes back in 2013. And from there, it just uh, it it. it it got toxic at uh, at one point at uh, after Spike. I'm, I'm forgetting which year it was. But remember they had they coming together on the opening lap, and then uh, Nico slashed uh, Lewis's. Uh, I think it was his right year rear tire. Lewis limped around to the back of the pits, and that was a bit of a, a disaster. I think after that uh, that incident, I think Total Wolf said that. At that point, they were willing to part ways with either one or both of those drivers, and they, they somehow were able to get it back, but it never really got good again. Anyway, some of the quotes from uh, Nico are kind of interesting. He had to say, quote, the friendship broke down, or the, the friendship breakdown, pardon me, happened immediately when we were fighting for the world championship, not before. But that's always the case. When you're fighting for success in every race and for titles, it doesn't work anymore. It was a buildup from one race to the next. If you want to decide the world championship for yourself you can't play love peace and harmony you have to test limits and go into the gray areas to win especially when two level drivers are at such a high level then it often gets tight then he goes on to say i don't regret anything from the battle with lewis that was a sensational time and a mega fight i'm very proud of that in the meantime we have returned to neutral which is okay, end quote. So I, I don't think there's anything really surprising in that uh, admission. I thought maybe it came a little bit, I didn't think it has happened as early as 2014. I mean, obviously it got worse and worse as time uh, went on, but I think he does make a good point that, you know, if you want to win a championship, you you have to be very selfish. You have to think only of, uh, you know, your your best interests. And, you know, I mean, it was it, it made for some compelling storylines at time. I mean, we, we've we've made mention to it a couple of times uh, in the show this evening, just how in that era they were just running away with it and lapping basically everybody, uh, everyone but themselves. But still, there was this uh, the, this storyline of uh, Lewis and Nico, and you know it was a bit of a guilty pleasure. I must admit, at times when it. Um, you know, it turned kind of nasty between them because, you know, it's, it's almost like that sort of like reality TV. It's just like, how bad is it uh, going to get between them? And, uh, it, you know, sadly, I mean, their 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 friendship did suffer for it. And I, I guess, you know, going back to neutral, like Nico admits, is probably good. But I guess it just goes to, to show how intense that battle was that if they can get back and, and see each other without you know, wanting to get be at each other's throats and maybe that's a, a good compromise, but still sad to see that, uh, that a friendship like that, that it persisted for so long, you know, ended the way that it did. Absolutely. Nico is asked about the 2016 championship endlessly. And to his credit, he always answers in very much the same way. But I like the way that you put it, that 2026 or 2016 was a guilty pleasure that even though Mercedes was dominating the championship, I tuned in every single weekend because I couldn't wait to see those sparks fly. I couldn't wait mm -hmm. to see the interactions in the cool down room. I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen in the garage. I couldn't wait to see the dynamic between them off the track. It was a thrilling championship. And, and it's interesting too, because I always look at the relationship of drivers and you look last year at Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc. And I keep saying this, they got along so well last year. They were friends. They were helping each other on the track. They weren't competing for a championship. There was nothing at stake. 
it all changes. The relationship, the dynamic changes as soon as there is a race victory within their grasp. And if we go to 2013, that was, of course, Lewis's first year with that team. They weren't contending for a championship. You flip the calendar 2014, it goes down to the final race in Abu Dhabi. Lewis wins the championship. 2015, Lewis wins. That, that entire championship, 2015 was a dud. Lewis wins with three races left. And then 2016 goes down to the final race once again. In fact, 2016 is such a guilty pleasure, I think, to both of us that you and I, before we actually ever got together and started doing a podcast together, we actually talked about doing a podcast series that would specifically recap moments in F1 Mm -hmm. history. And if you recall, the first episode that you and I were going to do, and you actually did a lot of the groundwork to put this episode together, we were actually going to do an entire podcast special that just recapped the 2016 season because despite the fact that there was zero competitive balance. Um, It was an incredibly exciting championship. So, you know, I credit Nico. I'm not the biggest Nico fan. You know, I've been on this roller coaster. I like him. I don't like him. I appreciate him. I don't appreciate him. (laughs) I appreciate that he's always an honest and he answers these questions consistently. But of course, his championship ended in or his career ended in 2016. So really, when you look at his career, it culminated in that one championship season when he won a championship. That's what he's always going to be asked about. And the highlight of that championship was the the battle, the duel with Lewis Hamilton. Well, it was interesting, too, because, I mean, he announced his retirement very, very quickly. I mean, it was, what, a week after the the, the final race, that, that, that dramatic finale at Abu Dhabi? <clears throat> Pardon me. And it really, I mean, it, it, it floored everyone because, of course, nobody expected him to, to do that. But more to your point that uh, you appreciate his frankness and his honesty. I, th- I think uh, I remember him saying that one of the reasons I, I don't remember now the time frame in which he made this admission, if it was immediately after his uh, retirement or in the, in the time afterwards, you know, it could have been weeks or months or whatever it was. But uh, I do remember at one point he did say that part of his reason that he, he, he didn't want to, to go back again, he decided to retire when he did was that, that just getting into a battle with Lewis Hamilton, you're not just fighting him on the track, but you're fighting him constantly because you get into that mental battle with, with, with Lewis, you know, and if he gets inside your head, you know, then, you know, you've basically lost and, and I'm completely paraphrasing here, but he was, he, he, he basically boiled it down to say that he just wasn't prepared to keep going on because that, that mental battle that he had to be ahead of Lewis and to beat Lewis was just so taxing and so draining and, and so costly in so many other ways that he, he did it enough to win one world championship, but he didn't necessarily want to keep doing it again in 2017 to defend and, and or, you know, win more world championships. So I, I was, you know, as, I found it disappointing when he retired when he did because I felt like that he could have gone on. But when I heard his reasons why, I did I, I could appreciate, you know, what, what his point of view at least. And I mean, we can only speculate at at, at how stressful and how, you know, taxing, you know, being in a battle like that would be. I mean, I mean, obviously you or I have never competed against uh, Lewis Hamilton, so we can only speculate. But I, I think that at any elite level sport, the pressure and the the expectations just must be monstrous to try and live up to, you know, before you even deal with your own expectations. In the best way, in, in a certain way, it's probably, it's not probably, it is absolutely the best thing that could have happened for Lewis Hamilton 
and for Mercedes because you remove that tension and you remove that friction from the garage. You know Lewis is capable of winning a championship every year and you've slotted Valtteri Bottas who delivers just enough to make sure that you can secure those constructors titles. In 17, 18, 19, and 20, they won both. So in a lot of ways, that was probably the best thing for, for everybody. In hindsight, like I would love to see an alternative universe where Nico comes back, but maybe he <laughs> comes back and that friction boils over over and it becomes untenable and one of the drivers has to leave or something unfathomable happens on the track. Like I would love in an alternative universe to have known what would have happened in 2017, but also I'm enough of a realist to believe that what ultimately ended up happening with his retirement was probably the best outcome for everybody involved. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to a couple of stories here, Mark, uh, before we tidy it up. I think these, uh, w- one of them is uh, quite juicy and it's another guilty pleasure to talk about, but, you know, uh, te- technical glitches not, notwithstanding, I can see we're, we're kind of uh, catching up on the time that we usually, uh, where we usually get to, uh, you know, when we call it quits on a, on a usual uh, podcast uh, night. But, um, I think we'll end with the juicy one, but uh, the, the first one is just uh, regarding uh, Aston Martin and uh, Sebastian Vettel. The team said that uh, that they don't have a plan B in place if Seb uh, decides to, to pull the pin and call it a career and retire. But uh, Vettel, on, on the other hand, said uh, that th- there's a clear intention to keep going in Formula One with uh, with, with Aston Martin. Uh, Seb had the following to say, quote, well, I'm racing this weekend and the next one. Then, yeah, obviously, I've said that at some point we will start to talk. I'm talking to the team. I think there's a clear intention to keep going. We'll soon see where we stand, end quote. So Aston Martin team principal Mike Crack said, quote, we, are, we were always clear that if he wants to continue, we would like him to stay for long Yes, we are talking. We have a very, very good relationship, and it is not that we have uh, to set uh, each other deadlines. Obviously, at one point, if we drag that uh, out too long, we will also be running into trouble, and he is aware of that. But they are very trustworthy decisions or discussions that we are having from that point of view. It is all good. End quote. Uh, I don't know what, what your thoughts are, Mark, but uh, I think that uh, if you're Aston Martin and uh, you're Sebastian Vettel, I think that there's there's I, I think there's a benefit for for both of them to continue with each other. This is a, a team that's obviously still trying to put their program together. I mean. Gone are the days of scraping together funding, either as as racing point or you know the uh, the latter days, the end days of uh, of uh, Force India, when uh, you know VJ Malia basically had that team on life support, and then uh, Sergio Perez stepped in with the uh, you know to help put that team into administration, which brokered uh, the way for or opened the door for for Lauren Stroll and his group to get involved, and the rest is history. I mean, they're building a new factory now a state-of-the-art phenomenal fantastic uh, looking facility next door to, to to silverstone but on the track it's it's been a little bit of a slow progress i mean we, we've seen some flashes uh, here or there i mean they haven't lived or lived up to what we had kind of uh, hoped they would do in the past uh, year and a half but i think that when you have a guy like sebastian vettel who is a, a four-time world champion i i don't I'll, I'll be straight up honest with you i don't know if sebastian vettel still has what it takes to be a world champion i do think however that if he has a good car a reliable car a, a car that uh, performs and drives well i still think that he's a, a driver that can put it into the points uh, regularly i think that he can still qualify well and I think to a certain degree, we have seen some very brief instances of that, uh, you know, this season. 
obviously that they they've had some some big setbacks as well but i think there there's still upsides uh, for for both parties for seb to continue with them definitely i was very concerned earlier this year about about Seb's commitment to this team. And and I don't mean that in a disingenuous way to Seb because he is the definition of professionalism within the sport, within Formula One. But this team had simply delivered such an underwhelming package for him last year and this year. I really wondered what that was doing to his commitment and his optimism and his his uh his belief in this in this team and this organization. And you know, you shared that chart earlier that showed point comp last year versus this year. Aston Martin was terrible last year. Right now, they're down 30 points on where they were at this point last year. So maybe he maybe he sees a grander vision that we don't see and he has better insight into the development of the car and he has reason to be optimistic. I also believe though that this is a team that's probably willing to pay him significantly more than any other team on the grid. I think the sport is so flush with young talent right now that most teams could pick up an incredibly young driver that has a world of talent, uh, whether it's a Palo or whether it's a Piastri or a DeVry, they could pick these drivers up for a song. Whereas I think regardless of where he went, Sebastian Vettel on the wrong side of 35 is still going to demand 10 or $15 million a year. And I think for a lot of teams, that's a, a tough pill to swallow. But if, if Aston Martin thinks that he's worth it and they're willing to pay it and he's optimistic that they're doing the right things institutionally um, and with the car, then, then that's great. I don't think any of us would sat, be sad to see Seb stick around the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so maybe we've saved the best for last, or you know, the the worst for last. Well, let's uh, let's throw it out there and see what uh, what everybody else thinks. At least it's going to be a lot of uh, fun uh, to talk about. But Rich Energy, remember them? They sponsored Haas, sort of, kind of, for a part of a season, sort of, kind of. Apparently, they pulled their sponsorship of their championship leading superbike team. So that's OMG Racing. Um, and they're halfway through the season and the bikes look great. They've got that black and gold, which is a rich energy. They got some sort of like a Royal blue with some silver and white uh, highlights on it. I mean, the bikes look uh, amazing. Anyways, so on Sunday this past weekend, there was a statement that was uh, released by the uh, Rich Energy HQ account on social media, and uh, they had to say, quote, public announcement, Rich Energy would like to thank OMG Racing UK for their work in the last two years, but the whole agreement is now at an end. Rich Energy is expanding its portfolio in many spheres, including sport. And then they go on to uh, list their contact information, and then they just uh, they just leave it at that. So OMG team principal Paul Curran uh, declined to comment when he was uh, contacted by Motorsports uh, Magazine. And after a, a long day of requests from the media, and then uh, the <laughs> Curran said that he was actually considering blocking uh, media's phone numbers and calls because it was just be uh, getting a, a little bit uh, too much. And then uh, a PR representative for OMG Racing said that they would release a statement later in the week now do you want to pick it up because in a story that has a bit of a twist to it there's another yeah. twist on top of it which is very rich energy so what, what did so you pick it up surprise, from here in a surprise to nobody 
Rich Energy was backing a motorsports team and bailed on them mid-season. And it was apparently William Story, who was the original CEO of Rich Energy before he was allegedly ousted, but then made a comeback and then was ousted again. He had issued that statement earlier this week saying, hey, we're parting ways with this British Superbike team. Now, the team was caught off guard because in a twist, and they announced a statement of their own the next day, they announced that neither William Story nor Rich Energy were in fact actually backing the team. Instead, the sponsorship was between the racing team, OMG Racing, and another company called Rich OMG. And Rich OMG is a separate company from Rich Energy that holds their global distribution rights. So neither Rich Energy or William Story were at all involved in the sponsorship, provided no funding, and provided absolutely no input into the agreement. It was a completely separate company called Rich OMG who happens to hold the global distribution rights for Rich Energy. And by the way, OMG Racing and Rich OMG are also owned by the same company. So the OMG Racing and Rich OMG were shocked earlier this week when a completely separate company announced that they were severing sponsorship ties with a bike company that they didn't actually hold. So it's very, very <laughs> peculiar that, that William Story and Rich Energy announced that they're severing ties, yet they didn't have ties to begin with. So it ends up being a bad look for everyone. And hopefully it will be another chapter in the amazing book about Haas, uh, Haas and Rich Energy that, of course, Elizabeth Blackstock is working on and will be publishing later this year. Yeah, I was just uh, go going to ask, uh, you know, if you talked to, uh, to Elizabeth this week to, to find out whether or not there's like another chapter going into this book or an addendum or something like that, because that was just a, a weird, weird story when they well, were and, uh, together gets, with Haas, right? And I should have I should have added this as well. So William Story also um, has allegedly this week argued that the agreement came to an end because he said, quote unquote, the Superbike team had openly been slandering Rich Energy. And I quote, they could not do the deal and our corporate partners indicated they were not appropriate to be involved with the brand. He said, we then heard firsthand from people in the paddock that OMG had been misrepresenting their position with Rich energy and slandering the owners principally him this rendered their position <laughs> tenuous at best so they presumably severed ties that they didn't have based on some gossip from the paddock that the team was slandering rich energy bizarre absolutely bizarre i just i cannot understand why people continue to get involved with that organization in any capacity and yet, uh, if I go down to the local gas station or 7-Eleven or the Circle K or whatever, I can't find a can or a bottle of rich energy anywhere. I mean, I can get a Red Bull, I can get a Rockstar Energy or Monster Energy, or name anyone you want, but I've never actually seen a, whatever they package them in, a, a bottle, flask, whatever, of rich energy anywhere. So I don't know if this actually, that this stuff actually exists or this is just one big marketing I have no idea. It is. Hey, Let's just, just say I'm looking forward to when Elizabeth like releases her, her, her book because I, 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 just, I just don't get it. I just don't understand yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> I had a thought. And you know, yeah. do you remember last summer we did that episode where we opened a package of Topps F1 trading cards live on the air? Yes, yes. How yep, about yep. this? We find a way to procure two cans of rich energy and you okay. and I both open them and taste okay. them on okay. the air at the same time. 
Does that sound okay, like a good idea? Does that make for good it. podcasting? <laughs> it doesn't, but we'll do it anyways. <laughs> Our listeners deserve nothing but the best after this gong show of a technologically impaired podcast. Well, we'll see how it goes because I'm kind of wondering now, is, is everything recording properly or am I going to be going back to record the audio off of YouTube and trying to, uh, <laughs> to oh, tidy that up later I hope on? Not. So, anyways, you know, technical problems notwithstanding, um, I think, you know, that that's pretty much everything that I've got uh, for this week. And, you know, I'm going to be, you know, completely open and transparent that because I know I have a long night of editing ahead of me. I don't want to drag this out longer than possible. But, you know, th- we have basically covered everything that we wanted to to cover this week i don't know if there was anything outstanding from the uh from the agenda i mean certainly uh there there isn't uh, from 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 my side you seem to be uh, shaking your head so you know that's uh that's probably good because though you've stopped talking again but i'm kind of worried that you know maybe we lost you again but you're probably just messing with me now aren't you (laughs) you can only hope no just and a quick reminder everyone we'll be back this weekend with tim rainey once again we'll be collaborating on a recap of the race uh, and a couple of other things to look forward to the summer break is fast approaching but that doesn't mean you won't be getting a steady stream of content from us Uh, we'll be recording next week with trey kirby of no dunks and no breaks from the athletic that'll be a podcast that we dropped during the summer break we're also going to be collaborating with kevin clark of the ringer and the f1 show which we're super excited about and also, we're going to be connecting with Steph Wentworth, who is currently uh, in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East doing some work uh, from her journalism side of uh, the career. Um, but lots and lots of exciting stuff to do. I know you and I have got at least two mailbag episodes. We're long oh, overdue to do a mailbag yeah. episode this summer. Uh, plus, inevitably, some other fun stuff will probably come up. So just know that even though Formula One's on hiatus during the summer, we definitely aren't. Yeah, I just want to also add that it's uh, pretty exciting, uh, the amount of people that have been reaching out lately, wanting to collaborate with us and some of the opportunities, you know, like, you know, like the, the the one that was uh, we mentioned off the top of the show, the uh, the opportunity to interview Tatiana Calderon a couple of days ago. So I'm just going to put it out there. Jessica Hawkins, two weeks ago. Yeah, and Jessica, two weeks ago, I was just going to say that, you know, Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, you know, if you guys, et cetera, if you guys want to get together and connect and do something, have your people reach out because we all know that the gatekeepers and the minions aren't going to let it happen. So, you know, I'll just, I'll put it down there. So the, the people that can really make it happen will uh, connect with us and we can, you know, it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but you know, I'm just going to throw it out there and see maybe by, 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 by wishing out loud, <laughs> something unexpected and cool would happen, but who knows that that's not to take away anything from uh, any of our recent guests. Cause they've all been uh, fantastic and looking forward to some of the ones uh, that are coming up uh, like uh, you. So, uh, so, so uh, mentioned just now, I think, uh, you know, Steph, Trey, et cetera, are all going to be wonderful, exciting guests and uh, looking forward to, uh, to having those uh, out for everybody to listen to. And I think that's where we're going to leave it. So uh, finally, thank you guys uh, for for bearing with us uh, this week. If you want to leave us a a rating and review, please do that next week when we're back to uh, (laughs) full technical capacity. But in the meantime, uh, jokey decide ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. are uh, one way to to really help support us and what we're doing here as it uh, helps keep the show visible and and they give us exposure to uh, other Formula One fans. If you want to get in touch with us on anything 
other than the uh, the technical issues, which we're well aware of. You can do so by sending us a tweet at f one pod or sending us an email at f one pod at gmail.com. And that's it. On behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the French Grand Prix. And we'll be back on Sunday night to wrap it up and recap it with Tim. Until then, bye for now.